0: Well, if you'll take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter number 8, please. Mark chapter 8. I'd like to share just a few thoughts with you from this passage. In perhaps a little bit of a different fashion than what I normally would in a message. But it's what the Lord has laid on my heart, and so I hope it will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would please take your word tonight and impacted into our lives. I pray that you would cause us to settle our hearts before you for a few moments and to hear what you want us to hear and to think what you want us to think and to visually see from your word what you want us to see and then to have willing spirits in the invitation time to respond as the Holy Spirit of God works in our life. Father, help us to consider how we measure the value of souls. And we'll thank you for it and trust it by faith in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In Mark chapter number 8, the Bible says in verse number 34, And we had called the people unto him with his disciples also, He said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Notice specifically verse number 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? How do you measure the value of a soul? Can you can you measure, humanly speaking, the value of a soul? I read an article several years ago of a doctor in Sweden who his entire work was wrapped around the care of terminally ill patients. If a person found himself under the care of this doctor, it's because their days, barring a miracle, were numbered. This doctor watched so many people go out into eternity. He watched so many people breathe that last breath of life on this earth. That he couldn't help but wonder, what happens to that person when they breathe that last breath? And so that doctor got an idea and he, he found the most sophisticated scale that he could possibly find. And when a patient was at the point where, barring a miracle, that patient was going to slip out into eternity, just before that happened, he would place that patient on this very sophisticated scale. And after doing this a number of different times, he came up with the fact that when that, that when a patient breathes his or her last breath, the scale drops on an average of 21 grams. Can we measure the soul of mankind by 21 grams? Is it a, is it a sophisticated scale that we can look at that would cause us to decide where we put the measure of a soul? I came across an article a while ago that was from Carey's day. Carey, as you know, we owe much of what we're able to do today in modern missions to what he did for us back in the 1800s. And Carey drafted a document in 1805. 1805 that was read in all of their public meetings three times a year. And I want to just note a couple of the things that is in that document. He says, The Redeemer implanting us in this heathen nation, rather than any other, has imposed upon us the cultivation and peculiar qualifications. Upon these points, we think it right to fix our serious and abiding attention. One. In order to be prepared for our great and solemn work, it is absolutely necessary that we set an infinite value upon mortal souls. In 1805, Carey saw it important to put an infinite value on mortal souls. He says, too, It is very important that we should gain all the information we can of the snares and delusions in which these heathens are held. By this means, we shall be able to converse with them in an intelligible manner. Three, it's necessary in our intercourse with the Hindus that as far as we are able, we abstain from those things which would increase their prejudices against the gospel. Those parts of English manners, which are most offensive to them, should be kept out of sight as much as possible. We should avoid every degree of cruelty to animals. In 1805, they were noticing these things. For it becomes us to watch all opportunities of doing good. We are apt to relax in these active exertions, especially in a warm climate, but we shall do well always to fix it in our minds that life is short, that all around us are perishing, and that we incur a dreadful woe if we proclaim not the good tidings of salvation. Wouldn't that be something if we would say the same thing in 2017? If we would, if we would just echo that last phrase, that life is short... That all around us are perishing and that we incur a dreadful woe if we proclaim not the glad tidings of salvation? Fifth, in preaching to the heathen, we must keep to the example of Paul and make it the great subject of our preaching, Christ the Crucified. It's a well-known fact that the most successful missionaries in the world at present day, 1805, Make the atonement of Christ their theme. What happened to that? How much preaching do we hear on the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ anymore? Here, I'm sure you hear it regular. Out there, no. In much of the modern pulpits, when you bring up the blood, it is an offense to them. Stop preaching a bloody gospel they're telling us to do. They saw way back in 1805, if we cease to do that, we might as well stop being missionaries. It's absolutely necessary that the natives should have an entire confidence in us and feel quite at home in our company. To gain this confidence, we must on all occasions be willing to hear their complaints and we must give them kindest advice. Another important part of the work is to build up. Watch over the souls that may be gathered. A real missionary becomes, in a sense, a father to his people. Did you get that? In 1805, they recognized that the real missionary, if he's going to be effective, he's going to have to be a father to the people. Now, that tells me, if he recognized, preacher, that there needed to be a father relationship, how long of a relationship do you have to have before you build the father-child, father-son bond? Can you build that in four years? I don't think so. Your preacher getting involved with missions, as much as he's going to be getting involved, can tell you all the numbers and all the statistics of how many of the missionaries don't last past the first term. Is it because they're not prepared enough to go? Is it because they go with the goal of coming back as quick as they can? It didn't used to be that way. You know as well as I know that it used to be that when the missionary packed their belongings to go to the field, they didn't pack their belongings in a suitcase. They packed their belongings in a casket. They went there to die. They went there to spend the rest of their lives reaching the people as effectively as they possibly could. Carry recognized it all the way back in the 1800s. It would do well for us to revisit that. The value of the soul. It becomes us also to labor with all our might in forwarding translations of the sacred scriptures in the language of the people. Really? In 1805, they saw the need of translating the word of God into the heart language of the people, what happened to that vision? Because if that understanding would have continued up until today, do you think we would still have half of a world that's never seen the Word of God in their heart language? If they just could have kept that challenge and spread it worldwide to get the Word of God into the heart language of the people, it would have made a difference today. But something happened. Maybe that something that happened has something to do with the devaluation of the souls of men. Man's soul, that which lives within the body. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, Paul referred to this body as a tabernacle, as a house, as the dwelling place of the soul. What shall profit a man if he shall gain the whole world, the whole world and lose his own soul? When man dies, His soul and spirit leave the body, but the man continues to live apart from his body. What part of that man continues to live? We have recorded in Scripture in Luke chapter 16, you know the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You have the rich man died and when he went to hell, he could see. Would sight be a part of that 21 grams? He said he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom across the gulf. It was not his body. We know that memory when Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receivest good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. Sight went. Memory went. Concern went. There's a concern for the five brethren. Please go tell them now. That they won't have to come into this awful place. There's feelings. The man in the scripture talked about hell and he said, I'm tormented in these flames. All those different things that we know for sure. Is that how we value? Or measure the value of the soul? Maybe in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 15 and 16. Look there real quick. These are familiar verses to you, but... Maybe that'll bring it more into perspective for us. First Corinthians chapter First John chapter number two. And look at verse number fifteen. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is the world? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, that strong desire to do. What would happen if I had the ability... To be able to grant you everything that you ever wanted to do. I could just give it to you. It's now yours. You would then have attained one third of the world. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. That, that desire to have. Everything your eyes have ever seen. Everything that neighbor had, everything that friend had, everything you saw in the catalogs, anything that you ever saw on the Internet, whatever you have seen and you wanted it, I could say, it's yours. You now have two-thirds of the world. What about the pride of life? The flesh, that consuming desire to do. The, the eyes, that compelling urge to have. The pride of life, that constant thrust to be. Everybody goes through some time in their life where they want to be something. There's probably sitting in here some young children that's going to be, as far as they're concerned, firemen. <laughs> There's that young child sitting here that's going to be the doctor. That's going to be the nurse. Everybody Goes through that stage of wanting to be something, right? I was a little bit weird in that category. I'm still a lot weird, but I was weird in that category when, when I was young. You gotta go back quite a ways for me to be young. I'm, I've got to the old category now. I'm 60, and so I'm, I'm there. I I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm more upright or more flat. I'm not sure where it is, but, but I'm there. But when I was young, I had this Uncontrollable desire to be a particular person. Now, my family, every year, my dad would pack us up. We had two weeks vacation back back then over Christmas, and and we would all pack up. We lived in Michigan. We'd all pack up and go to Florida, and my dad would 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 pull our camper down there, and and we'd park right on the beach. It, it was easy to do way back in the in the seventies <laughs> to find camping on the beach, and. Uh, we would pull our little camper up to the spot, and it was a little four foot by ten foot cement pad that we'd pull up next to that. And most most kids, when they get down to Florida, they want to get to the beach, they want to fly kites, they want to swim, they want to do all kinds of stuff. But no, no, not not me. What I want to do is I had my basketball because my uncontrollable desire when I was twelve and thirteen and fourteen years of age was to be like Pistol Pete Maravich. You might remember Pistol Pete Maravich? There's like two of you old enough to remember him. I mean, Pete Maravich, if you don't know who that is, you might want to Google him because undisputedly one of the best basketball handlers that there ever has been known to man. It's unbelievable what he could do. They would even have announcers as they were announcing the ball games, he would make a play and he'd pass the ball off. The announcers wouldn't even see it happen. And it would go to another person, a basket would be made, and they'd go, I'm not sure who scored that. It was unbelievable how effective he was. And I would spend hours and hours learning how to dribble that basketball. I mean, I just loved it. I just wanted to be him. And then I got old enough to be able to try out for the basketball team. No problem, right? I tried out. Tryouts were over. This was back in the day when you actually got cut. If you weren't good, you actually got cut. (laughs) That actually did used to happen. You know, the, you know it used to be that if you played t-ball or whatever it is, there were winners and losers. It used to be that way. I know it's not really politically correct for it to be that way anymore, but, but that's the way that it was. And, and I remember after the tryouts were all done, Brother Teeson, that the coach brought me into the office, and he said this. He said, Brother Marwelli, you're one of the best ball handlers I've ever seen in my life, but you don't know how to play the game. And I got cut. I spent all that time in my life to be the best ball handler that I possibly could be, but I never thought about the importance of learning how to play the game. I didn't handle that very well. And so I no longer liked playing basketball. I thought, that's, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so I quit. I got another thing I wanted to be. Everything changed. Any of you remember, way back in the day, there was this incredible person by the name of Buddy Rich? Thank you for raising your hand, one dear, sweet lady. One of the best, without dispute at all, drummers that the world has ever known. He could do with drumsticks what nobody has even come close to be able to do, even to this day. And so I said to myself, I'm going to be just like Buddy Rich. My mom and dad bought me a drum set, and I got real serious about it, in fact, Brother Alcock, I got so serious about playing drums at 15 years of age, people were paying me to teach them how to play. It's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. That's what I wanted to be. Then I got saved. That changed all of that. No more basketball ideas, no more drumming ideas, everything changed. What if I could give you everything that you ever wanted to be? Everything that you have ever seen. What if I could give all of that which you ever wanted to do? You would now have the whole world. But if you lose your own soul, the Bible says you've made a bad deal. What shall it profit a man? The question is very clearly, how do we measure the value of a soul? Jesus measured the value of a soul in his statements. He made it very clear in that passage of Scripture. Jesus measured the value of a soul in his suffering. All that Jesus went through. All that He did on the cross of Calvary. All the suffering that Jesus Christ endured on that cross. He did it for you and for me. You have to agree with me. According to the precious Word of God, there's not a portrait that's hanging on a wall anywhere that I've ever heard of or seen in the world. There's never been a depiction that's gone on to the big screen that even comes close to describing what Jesus Christ went through. On the cross of Calvary. The Bible says his visage was so marred more than any man. As in, after he went through that horrible torture, you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. He said, I measure the value of your soul by not only what I say in my word, but what I did on the cross of Calvary. I didn't suffer all of that just because I could. I didn't suffer all of that just because I'm God. I suffered all of that because I love you so very much. He measured the value of the soul based on the separation from himself. We know, according to the precious word of God, that hell is a literal place. And I don't have the time nor the proper vocabulary to go into the details of how horrible of a place that that really is. But what's the worst part about it? Is the worst part about hell all the young people that's going to be running up and down the hallways of hell, if there are hallways, right behind their dad, screaming out to their dad, why? Why didn't you tell me? Why are we in this horrible place? Is the worst thing about hell all the sweet little girls that's going to be running through the awfulness of that place behind their mom saying, Oh, mommy, why, why did you let us get into this place? No. Is the worst thing about hell going to be the memory that will never stop of all the people that are there remembering all those times that the preacher got to the invitation? He said, if you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your name can be written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can be sealed by the Holy Spirit of God until the day of promise. God even says, I'll build a mansion for you in heaven. Remember all those times that they said, no, not not now. How many times did they say, I have time? And then we hear about awful situations like that. Man, it fell off the ladder. I read about a man just a few days ago that He actually died from a lawnmower accident. We don't know how much time we have. Is that the worst thing about hell? Is it that constant feeling of falling? Never, ever, ever, ever being able to get our feet under us again? I submit to you that the worst thing about hell is to forever be apart from the presence of Jesus Christ. And I have to ask how much do we value? The preacher in his announcement said we need to consider the souls of the people in our area. If our value system for those souls is where it ought to be, biblically speaking, that would not be any issue for us. We'd be out there as much as we possibly can. We wouldn't be able to pass a person. We wouldn't be able to be next to a person in the grocery store. We wouldn't be able to be across the gas pump from a person at the, at the gas station. We wouldn't be able to be walking down the street with our, taking our pet for a walk and, and pass somebody. We wouldn't ever be able to see a person without that thought going through our mind, where are they going to spend forever? Where are they going to spend forever? What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You see, church, I am 100% convinced that if we don't have the proper measurement on the value of souls right here, when we say to you about the 3 billion that live over there, that have yet for the first time to read, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. They've never read it one time. And if you don't value souls here, you're probably not going to value souls there. Could I encourage you tonight just to consider how you measure the value of a soul.